Dr. George, doctors often do an excellent job of focusing on their patient's physical condition, but they sometimes overlook psychological health. Today, healthcare professionals are increasingly acknowledging the connection between mental health and physical well-being. This could lead to more effective treatment and prevention strategies that focus on the patient as a whole. So how does good mental health help us ensure a better cardiovascular system overall? Well, actually, in Malaysia, ischemic heart disease is ranked as the highest cause of mortality. And depression and cardiovascular disease has been linked since the early 1990s. In fact, uh, we did a survey of 115 heart patients at a heart center in Malaysia Mm -hmm. and found 48.7% to have significant depression symptoms. Oh, okay. Now, the American Heart Association in this article reviewed a number of studies into how psychological factors affect cardiovascular health. And, you know, the study participants who reported greater optimism, sense of purpose, happiness, uh, and mindfulness or life satisfaction, or even emotional well-being, gratitude and resilience, they were less likely to experience stroke and cardiovascular disease. And they also had lower risk of mortality. So people who report a positive mental health status are actually likely to also have lower blood pressure, better glucose control, less inflammation and even lower cholesterol as well. So the the study suggests that participants, you know, uh, if they engage in beneficial behavior, like higher levels of physical activity, adopting heart-healthy eating habits, adhering to medication schedules and and not smoking and all of that, Mm -hmm. this together with positive mental health actually reduces those risks. Is there any direct link to mental health and and sort of um, having other problems causing real physical problems? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's known that depression can actually lower immune uh, Mm. responses uh, and make it more sluggish for your body to actually deal with things uh, in battling other illnesses. Also, people with depression are known to have uh, poorer life choices. So, Exercise may be on the decline. Mm. Uh, their eating habits and you know the type of food that they're having all may be reduced. But depression also increases the risk of you know poor physical self care, mm-hmm. and all of this actually contributes to other medical morbidity. How would we know whether or not to take a look at the, our mental health side of things to see whether or not that's lowered our defenses and therefore? you know, we've got this and whether that's helpful. Well, I think from this study, it actually suggests that we don't have to wait for an illness to come to decide, shall we do something about mental health? Mm. The more we invest in our mental health, the higher the chances that we can actually prevent medical problems. In fact, studies have shown that chronic traumatic stress, anger, hostility, anxiety, depression, and pessimism, Mm -hmm. these conditions actually increase our risk for chronic health conditions. You know, so I often, you know, prescribe mental health hygiene to my patients. It's just as good as, you know, you brushing your teeth, your dental hygiene you do every day, maybe twice or thrice a day. So what do you do about your mental health hygiene? How much have you invested in your mental health, not just for prevention of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, but for prevention of chronic medical conditions. Mm -hmm. Dr. George, around the world, the COVID-19 pandemic has led to millions of people losing their jobs, with some communities being hit harder and low-income families disproportionately affected. Researchers are now finding that unemployed people are less mentally and physically resilient than those with work. Now, ordinarily, we'd assume that if there was a loss of income, a person would 
would um, be practical enough if that's part of resilient enough to be going out and looking for another job. But this article states otherwise. And of course, in these times, that's not so easy either. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, well, actually, resilience is the ability of people who are exposed to, you know, a disruptive event to maintain stable, healthy levels of psychological and physical functioning. We all need resilience in the light of, you know, the increasing cases and the lockdown that we're going through. But resilience is not a constant. It's not the same among people from different backgrounds. Mm. It's well known that depression and anxiety are three times higher for those from lower income groups. And it's also two times more common in women than in men. The pandemic has actually caused disproportionate effects affecting low income families more than others. Mm. You know, so they and often women don't more have, than men. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. And women more than men. You're mm. right. But, you know, very often those who are from a low income, you know, background don't have safety nets like the others. You know, they may not have, you know, savings or extended family or parents to, you know, shower and, uh, you know, help them out during this period. Yeah, but uh, the effects of the pandemic and losing a job can also include, you know, a loss of identity and sense of purpose, feeling like you're unappreciated and, Mm -hmm. you know, don't feel like you're essential anymore, angry and scared and jealous of others who can still work and and lost as, you know, you don't know what to do next. Mm -hmm. And of course, you'd be worried about how you'll take care of yourself, your family and provide for basic needs. Not everyone with these feelings can actually find the resilience and so sometimes it can increase mental health issues. Is it possible to, I mean, like my understanding, and it could be wrong, of resilience is something that you kind of, um, it's a smorgasbord of experiences you've had along the way that you then can tap into to repel Mm. you in those moments. But when everything sort of seems to fall apart, is it possible to kind of, for want of a better phrase, build your resilience back up from scratch? knowing that that's possibly what you need in order to not give up and to be able to find or figure out what you're going to do next? Yeah, I mean, ideally, if people build resilience from a young age, then they're better equipped to deal with adversities like this. So that's why we encourage parents and, you know, schools to actually consider building mental health resilience. It's a skill that carries people throughout their whole lives through pandemics and, you know, life events. But I think the other thing is also accepting feelings that people may go through during this period. I mean, you will maybe experience the fight, fright, flight, you know, response in response to losing your job. And that can trigger anxiety. But accept that and understand it as well. And then seek out resources like, you know, whatever the government has suggested and offered and, you know, supports for public during this period and maybe friends and others who you may know. And importantly, look after yourself and maybe even find this period to rediscover and improve on your strengths and qualities for the next you know, opportunity in work. Dr. Philip, research from the Education Policy Institute and the Prince's Trust shows that teenagers' mental health is being damaged by heavy social media use. How does the constant bombardment of physical, quote-unquote, perfection lead to mental health issues with our teens? You know, social media has both positive and negative effects. Some of the positives include, you know, being able to access therapy online. And then there's been a surge of information on mental health well-being during the pandemic. That's helped support people. But there are 
are negative effects as well. And social media can influence this. As children mature, an important aspect of the development is actually peer acceptance. This influences how they are, you know, viewed by others mm. and by themselves. And the tendency sometimes is to compare with others. Now, social media allows adolescents to compare themselves not only with their peers, but to millions of other teens who are online. Right. And, you know, digitally altered photos of flawless faces or, you know, sculptured bodies. Mm. That will set impossible standards for both boys and girls. Yeah. Uh, while girls, you know, maybe go on diets, boys are most likely trying to bulk up muscle and use protein supplements or steroids. Mm. So if taken to the extreme, these behaviors can actually be dangerous. Uh, actually, there are three types of perfectionism. There's the self-orientated perfectionism. There's the other-orientated perfectionism. And then finally, the socially prescribed perfectionism. In the socially prescribed perfectionism, which is largely related to social media in this day and age, mm -hmm. the youth believe their social context is you know, excessively demanding, that others judge them harshly, and that they must display perfection to secure, you know, approval. Right. So, so do you mean anxiety, stereotypes and stuff like this? Yeah, but I mean, just to be approved, because I mean, the important thing in young people, in teenagers is for peer acceptance. Mm. And so, you know, if it's on a social media platform, then it's appearance because you're not having face-to-face, -face, you know, coffee and tea with right. them and discussing yeah. things. So anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation are actually common mental health problems that are linked to this form of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. So what it means is it doesn't happen to everyone. It's those who are maybe over relying on this social perfectionism that others must see me perfect right. and then only I can feel perfect myself. Right. So, gosh, okay, so external sort of recognition and reward, as it were. Yeah. That darn like button, it's awful. It does so much damage, right? So what were Absolutely. the other two perfections, perfectionisms that you were talking about, self and... So there is self and then other prescribed uh, perfectionism. So, you know, with typically with self-perfectionism, it is self-oriented perfectionism is often a subtle way of dealing with things that, uh, you know, uh, that they can't manage or control in their life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they may be over involved in, you know, appearances or the type of food or in a way to cope with, you know, the bullying that they're experiencing in school. Right. Understand. They can't control the bullying. So they're doing something else to themselves. And then there's other orientated perfectionism, which can be, you know, maybe the values and principles that they've been brought up with. Mm. That you have to only bring A's in your results. That you have to be the top of the class or it's unacceptable. Right. You know, and that could be a message that's, you know, from the new family or mm. from extended people. Dr. Philip, according to a new study, researchers did not find in association between anxiety or mood disorders and death from COVID-19. But they found that people with schizophrenia or depression were about 2.7 times more likely to die from COVID-19 than people without any mental disorders, mm. the second highest risk factor after age. So why do mental illnesses cause death in patients who have contracted COVID-19? Actually, previous studies have found that people with mental illness, especially depression and schizophrenia, had higher risk of being infected with 
COVID-19. But in this new study of 260 clinics in the US, they found that people with schizophrenia alone Mm -hmm. were 2.7 times more likely to die from COVID-19 than people without that illness, uh, which is the second highest risk factor after age. Mm -hmm. But this was not true for anxiety or mood disorder, which includes depression. So it's not true for depression, really. Why does schizophrenia increase risk of dying? Mm. Well, people with schizophrenia already typically have shortened lifespans, according to research. Really? Right. Okay. Yeah. So we may be comparing a young schizophrenic patient with an older population who already have higher risk of dying from COVID. Right. So there's a sort of accelerated aging that's mm-hmm. going on with different parts of their body right. in patients with schizophrenia. There is a suggestion, too, that maybe the illness or the medications used to treat schizophrenia can have an impact on the immune system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we are still not confirmed on this and needs more studies to help identify the real factors. Right. So what would the treatment modality be any different when it comes to mental health patients in terms of medicine that's given with with the the drugs that they may be on? Well, some uh, medication may have contraindications in terms of mental health treatment. And so that has to be reviewed uh, because the different medication regimes that are used for COVID vary from one individual to another. Mm -hmm. But actually not treating the mental health problem increases the risk of the immune system being you know, not being able to manage or set up a response to the infection as well. So I think it's important to actually address both of them together. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have liaison teams. So liaison teams would be, you know, the psychiatric team helping in managing people who've been identified with a mental health problem, right. suffering with COVID as well. Okay. Uh, and then understanding each individual separately. So there's no blanket rule. It has to be case by case, depending on the different types of medication. Use. Right, because you know you're gonna go. Do I treat the mental health issue or do I treat yeah. the physical? Yeah. Which one is first in the way, right? So both yeah. at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, you, it's just like saying, okay, he's got a hypertension and diabetes. We'll neglect that and focus on the COVID. Absolutely. So, yeah, we know that people who have poor control of hypertension and diabetes have poor outcomes from COVID. Mm. So yeah, we have to treat them. Dr. Philip, according to a new study, a blood test could diagnose depression and bipolar disorder after researchers found that levels of a nerve growth factor protein called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, were lower in people with depression or bipolar disorder than in healthy control patients. How accurate are these blood tests when it comes to diagnosing a mental health condition? Well, BDNF is a protein in the brain Mm -hmm. that actually promotes the growth and survival of nerve cells. And it's got a vital role in learning, memory, and maintaining brain flexibility, or what we call as plasticity. Psychosocial stress reduces the BDNF, especially mature BDNF, that's MBDNF. And low levels are associated with depression. So Prof Zhao and his colleagues in Adelaide have found a way to test this MBDNF. Mm -hmm. They've used the test to show that people with depression or bipolar disorder actually have lower levels in their blood than healthy controls. But the authors say that doctors, you know, they they suggest that it could help to diagnose these conditions and monitor the success of treatment because BDNF, when it's low, can be associated with depression or bipolar. But when it goes up, it can be associated with recovery. So you can actually monitor the BDNF levels. Like like a base level, if that's where they started to see where it goes. Yeah. So could, you know, could the BDNF be low for any other reason than mental health? 
health that needs to be excluded or thought about too? Yeah, so basically it suggests it's uh, stress. So stress can be, you know, mental or even physical. Yeah. So there can be physical stress that can also trigger BDNF changes. But MBDNF seems to be more specific for mood disorders, oh. but it's not just, you know, depression. There are five types of depression. There's about two types of bipolar. So you're still not going to be able to make a diagnosis. You can say, okay, there may be a mood disorder. Is it bipolar? Is it depression? Is it the different types? All that needs a clinical assessment. So in your opinion, what would be the most effective way to diagnose a mental health issue? Yeah, currently we rely on a clinical assessment and that's typically a psychiatric interview with patient and his family and coupled with investigations especially to rule out other medical conditions as well as psychological investigations like a screening test or rating scale and social investigations like a work report by using all of this we can actually make an accurate diagnosis as accurate as doing an mri for a brain tumor yeah so this additional test is an objective biomarker for mood disorders Mm -hmm. But it is an addition to the clinical assessment and cannot stand alone.